The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today, we're talking with the world-famous neurologist, my friend Dr. Seth Keller, who is the head of the National Group Task Force on dementia and Alzheimer's and all the stuff that makes our brains not work so good. <laughs> Seth, welcome. How are you? Thank you, Hacky. It's a, it's a pleasure being here. <laughs> That's a great introduction. I appreciate that. Well, I was going to start to read all of your stuff, but it would, it would take a half hour. You know, yeah, we don't have, I don't have all day, Hacky. So <laughs> You've been all over the map. You've done everything. Yeah, I can't sit still, Hacky. I got a lot of energy. So. All <laughs> you, right. know, you know how that is, yes. Now, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience the way you'd like to be introduced? Um, yeah, hi folks, I'm Seth Keller, and thank you very much, uh, Hacky, for, for having this wonderful conversation. And to start out, it, it's great knowing you and working with you, and it's, it's certainly a pleasure. Um, well, I'm from Philadelphia, uh, I'm married with two children, and um, basically I'm, I'm a, a general neurologist in a group practice in um, suburban, suburban uh, New Jersey, 20, 30 minutes outside of Philadelphia. And the passion of what I do, and as much as you're describing it, Hacky, I appreciate that, is truly in regards to um, adult care, geriatric care, neurologic complications, and in particular with those who do have intellectual and developmental disabilities. So, so um, yeah, I mean, it's a complex life like all we have, but uh, that's a nutshell, I suppose. Seth, what inspired you to get into this field? Well, I'd like to say, Hacky, it's because I've had years and years of training uh, or family members that have uh, had had disabilities. Um, I, I, I can't admit to any of that because that is very far from the truth. Um, I basically really, to be honest with you, like a lot of people really didn't have a lot of exposure to the needs and cares and lives of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And my um, involvement really became um, uh, as a neurologist who was really looking to help those that were disadvantaged and were having a fair amount of complication within their um, illness, per se. And I became very knowledgeable and expertise in the, in the care of those with epilepsy, seizure disorders. And in my early training, I ran across a, a number of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who kept coming to our emergency room and hospital center, uh, who I might see in my office, who I really didn't know much about. I really didn't know them as people and their complex lives, but it was clear to me that um, they had certain needs and um, um, wants that really weren't being answered uh, by neurology, by mainstream medicine. And I, I looked at it as an opportunity, and it became a growth effort for me that grew and grew and grew with uh, bumps along the way and, and uh, hurdles, roadblocks, and uh, uh, that's, a, that's a huge story into itself. Connect the dots for us, if you will, Seth, from various neurodiversities, progression into dementia and Alzheimer's, which as we all know, is a vast epidemic in this world. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, really what it is, is that uh, people with, say, developmental disabilities have childhood onset uh, difficulties uh, with their brains. So from the time that they might be born early up until perhaps 18 years old, their their brain has uh, had some challenges in terms of its development, leading them to have then um, uh, difficulties perhaps throughout their lifespan in various aspects. Um, so they, for them, that is their normal. These are individuals that, you know, God bless them and their abilities. This is their normal life and how they uh, uh, live their lives with certain difficulties, perhaps. And that's different, much different than those that have difficulties later on in life. So, uh, so for instance, as for me as a neurologist that specializes in geriatrics, I see it both ways. I see people that have had perhaps developmental difficulties throughout their whole lifespan, but I also see it where people are living their lives in a certain so-called stable way, and then as they turn into adults and even aged adults, they develop some types of newer challenges that are, are a process related to the brain, such as a stroke, such as multiple sclerosis, such as a dementia. And these are problems that happen later on life due to acquired problems, acquired problems, uh, illnesses and diseases, trauma, perhaps later on in life. Then speaking about trauma, uh, what's a very hot topic nowadays, as you know, is concussions, whether it be football, soccer, boxing, whatever. Speak a little about the relationship from your point of view between concussions and dementia. Now, Hacky, I, I do know that you, you are a boxer, is that true? I had 26 pro heavyweight fights, and yes, this was a left-handed way of me finding out how many years do I have before I get the dementia? Right. And I know, I mean, I'm kind of kidding with you as a friend of mine, but I, I know it is, a, you know, it is a serious discussion and I, I kind of, you know, tongue in cheek appreciate you know, where you're coming from and all that. I'm giving it right back to you, my friend. So basically. It's very serious. Why are we both laughing? But well, yeah, it is, to. you know and what? Really, I'll just kind of give you a background. I, I, back in the day when I was in my youth, I was an athletic trainer. So I worked. I, I have a lot of different hats I wore. So when I was in high school, what I did uh, mostly in high school, besides just typical academics and social fun stuff with my friends, I was actually the head athletic trainer for my high school in Philadelphia. And so my interest in concussion or sports-related injuries or trauma dates back many years. So I definitely appreciated from the early 70s the issues of head injury or concussions, I didn't really honestly think much about it in terms of its long-term consequences later in life because there really wasn't much discussed over it. Uh, but over the course of time, um, as my involvement grew and became a neurologist, and I started seeing things and treating older uh, individuals who had uh, various injuries to their head, and the science, the research, the information grew and grew that, that concussions were underrepresented, they're underappreciated. So even the aspect of a so-called simple concussion hacky, a ding, a person that was buzzed in their head or some kind of word that would be used that would kind of underplay what is really truly a, a concussion, years ago was kind of just like, shake it off, you know, fella, get back in the game, you're good, you're fine. But in fact, that really led to a lot of problems early on and later on in life 
when a lot of individual children, you know, adolescents, young adults were probably having concussions. So it wasn't really recognized until their degree of a concussion, loss of consciousness, obvious difficulty seen on the field that they had a head injury, went down to the ground, weren't coming back right away. Those were obvious. Those were kind of obvious. And those that were even more obvious that were unconscious for a while and had to go to the hospital, can't hide that. So as the time went on, Hacky, it became recognized that these things were accumulative. They would notice that if you kept having concussions later on in life and you had some threat in your lifespan, there was even proof before the more recent information, Hacky, on the NFL scenarios that, that later that concussions throughout your lifespan absolutely, absolutely can lead to long-term complications that can affect the memory and your behavior and increased risk of depression. But even that probably wasn't really appreciated as much as the more recent information involving the NFL players and others in life. So right now, there really is quite a turn that I see in my practice in neurology when parents or young people come in with a sports injury with a very much heightened sensitivity appreciation is what will this concussion do to me now when I'm younger and therefore what should I do in the future, near future time or long future time about participating any further in sports. So definitely there's a big turn in this. Well, you know, um, when I would I would commute from Fort Lauderdale up to Boston University to give the first year lectures in anatomy. And uh, I would uh, speak to Dr. Robert Stern up there, who was the NFL project uh, with the, uh, you know, progressions of concussion and CTE right. and so forth. And one thing that rang with me, in fact, I reserved the, uh, the domain name for it was reconcussions because it struck me as almost a, a relative layperson to the people right. like yourself who devote your lives to the brain, is um, it's the repetitive nature where the metabolites can't get out of the brain and the system can't percolate them through, such as they did away with the two-a-days, uh, you know, in, in the NFL and so forth. Um, could you comment on the repetitive nature as opposed to the big hits when we're talking about concussions and head trauma? Well, I'll give you my, I'll give you my um, uh, simplistic way of looking at it is some of the repetitive is that you, if it's thought that someone returns to sports play too soon, not only will they have a delay in, in regaining function back or improving their difficulties, but it's actually it's thought that there's this rare situation with a repetitive injury soon after the, the initial head injury that they can actually have severe trauma with bleeding and swelling in the brain, and that is a very rare situation. That may not be quite you're referring to, but there is there is that type of rare phenomena which people think about after after someone had the concussion is something that could happen again shortly after that. That's a rare situation in the immediate way. But what is here? I don't know if that answers your question. No, well, well I'm, I'm referring part. more to the the buildup of the uh, stuff, if you will, right. that you end up seeing in these uh, autopsies um, and all of Why the, not? you know, the, I'll call it metabolic debris rel relative to Alzheimer's with the uh, anatomical yeah. changes and the- Right, well, it's scars. I mean, basically what they are is that with, with, with concussions, the brain cells themselves and their connections can die back. And so that leads to analogous, which is really like scar tissue. 
And that's really basically what they're alluding to or talking about in some of the autopsies of, of traumatic, you know, traumatic encephalopathies in athletes is some of the debris, which is basically from neuronal or nerve injury over time, and that can accumulate. And when that accumulates, it, it actually affects the, the person's ability to reason and think and cause uh, risk of high depression and memory dysfunction. Um, and that's really what the debris is. It's the neuronal damage from repetitive injuries. There's a whole cascade uh, uh, hack here, I'm not kind of mentioning metabolic changes. So there's a really a lot of research that talks about what happens when someone has a stunt to their head, a head injury, what's the process from immediately that happening, leading eventually to the um, uh, nerve injury. And that does have to do with uh, electrical impulses of the brain that has to do with flow metabolism within the nervous system. So, so there is a lot of research that's involving and studies. There's actually research that's looking at more sensitive um, imaging of the brain that can see these things. Because right now, typically, when people get a CAT scan of their head or an MRI of their brain, they're normal. You, you rarely see much there at all wrong, and yet the individual is showing all signs of a concussion. And that doesn't uh, that is is not um, objective enough to really know how much problems they are having. So all this research now is looking deeper by having more sensitive studies imaging the brain that is in, is in research and evolving that will show when someone can really re is how much damage it really was, and it can then be more sensitive perhaps to show that the brain is healing and will be then more important. To say when can that person return back to um, a contact sport or not? So there is going to be a future evolution. Because right now, my sense, I'm not an NFL coach, I'm not a, a trainer anymore. But as you know, people who are having injury, you see them all the time in NFL sports. They take them into this hut of some sort on the on the sideline. They do this, you know, this type of testing on the individual, and they do an analysis of them in the NFL, and they have a protocol in the NFL. Where they the, 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 they have even had a neurologist. They have a, like a team neurologist who basically is not directly connected to the team because of a conflict of interest. Before years ago, there was actually a conflict because the coach wants a player in, wants a coach wants a player in, the player wants to play. So you have this uh, physician or trainer on the side who basically doesn't have a lot of authority, and sometimes they're afraid to pull their star player off the field because of the implications of the team. So there's been a lot of social issues that have gone into denial, delay, recognizing dementia, all sadly enough because the bottom line at that point, win, 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 win. So there had to be some disconnection between the people who are the coaches and the player, and that's where they got a semi-independent person like a neurologist who basically cared only about the individual. They, they didn't have the pressure on them to kind of make the decision, well, if I get this player out, boy, there goes my team. So they really needed that somewhat independent uh, way. But it's the testing and the assessment that they use to try to like validate how much problem they have in this testing that they do, which honestly, at this point, I can't really say how accurate it really is. I'm kind of, that's not my deep specialty at this point, but they have this criteria that they must use by these teams after they assess the person, do they have a concussion, do they not? And then what is showing on their abilities to then say you're free and clear of your concussion and now you can safely go back and play at your prior level of contact sports. Well, it's a, it's a sticky wicket, that's for sure. 
Yes, absolutely. Let's leave that. You can go on and talk about if you. We can open up about other sports too. I mean, it, you know, not to open up a can of worms, but certainly there are other sports that are also going on day to day. That basically, I hate to say that, you know, in, in this interview, cut me out or not, but basically boxing. I mean, where does boxing come in in terms of where they are at the state of the state of, of uh, concussion awareness and understanding of that? So, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about it, Hacky, but you might have stories yourself about people. You well, I will about. listen. Uh, I think um, society in general has to come to grips with the reality of it that, uh, this stuff is gladiatorial, and it's not good to get hit in the head, whether it's soccer, hockey, or anything else. Now, when you talk about football and boxing, boxing especially is a little bit different because the object is to knock the other guy out. Now, I would get called during my, you know, I, I fought pro my 26 fights between when I was 38 up till I was 52. And right. at the time, I was a team physician for the the state champion uh, football team here, and I would appropriately get be called a hypocrite because on a Friday night, I would take the quarterback out for at least two weeks after he got his bell rung, and Saturday night I'd be on TV in a ten round fight, getting knocked down three times in one round myself, and getting back up and fighting. Right. And I think that. We're, we're kidding ourselves when we send our kids out to play Pop Warner football. And, um, and we're at every level. It's not just the NFL, but it is such a big, big, big industry. And all of these are the feeder system that it's a very difficult problem that you and I aren't going to solve today. But I can tell you one thing that based on my limited knowledge would help without hurting the game. And I honestly believe this, that, you know, based on my limited knowledge, some of these tau proteins and other debris and stuff that forms right. in the brain, the, the body and the brain have to have time to kind of flush them out. Yeah. And whenever that process has taken place, one thing we know is not good that would not affect the quality of the game at all is to outlaw the congratulations by butting heads and smacking each other on the head. Because here yeah. you have a running back who just went through from three yards out, took a bunch of knocks to the brain, and now everybody's tapping him on the head. Now he's butting heads with the other yeah. guy. Yeah. That should be outlawed because that yeah. can't be doing you any good. It can't yeah, be doing you any good. That. So I think that right here at Different Brains, Dr. Seth Keller and Dr. Hacky Reitman, we'll have to figure out how to get a hold of the NFL commissioner and the owners oh, sure. and say, let's get rid of that at least. <laughs> I think we should. It'll be a I'm step in the right direction. Yeah, sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a good cause. Okay. I'm going to use your name and say, okay. I got him into this. Now, That's uh, sure. I would like you to tell our audience if they want to learn more or get in touch with you, how do they do so? Absolutely. Um, it's easy to find me. I'm all over my own uh, organizations or website, aadmd.org. So to find me is easy because I'm, I'm splashed all over our organizational website, aadmd.org. 
And within that is information about the national task group or the work that I do and my colleagues. So that would probably be the easiest way to do. Uh, and I'm not alone in this, Hacky. I mean, honestly, I appreciate you know all these things we're talking about. I'm just one person amongst a good number of people who enable me and I enable them in a group fashion to do you know things that that we really couldn't do individually. It's in the group, and even what you do, Hacky, is a tremendous benefit because we all work together. So the networking, the camaraderie. I appreciate all that you do. Well, thank you very much. But my job is simply to try to highlight what you people in the front line, in the trenches are really doing day in, day out. You're in there, you're doing it. And uh, I salute you and admire you. And anything that differentbrains.org that we can do here to spread the word, we're glad to do it. We're very glad to do it. And thank you so much for spending time with us. Dr. Seth My Keller, pleasure. thank you. Thank you very much. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.